Well, good morning again. One thing I like about this place is the coffee cups are so nice. Don't you find that? Yeah, they're very nice. And it's okay. You can bring the coffee and tea in here. It's quite all right. We don't have to clean it after. That's one of the things about renting a facility, right? One of the perks. But anyway, welcome again this morning. And welcome to everyone who is watching on Facebook Live. Uh, though you are not here in body, you are here in spirit. Um, even if you're going to watch this a little later on, we welcome you to, to the feed today and to the message today. Um, right, so we're continuing this series called Didn't See It Coming. Didn't See It Coming, and uh, this is based on a new book uh, from a Canadian, a Canadian pastor in Ontario. His name is Carrie Newhoff, kind of a strange last name. Uh, but very uh, fascinating um, leader, and he, he's growing in terms of influence, uh, not only in Canada, but internationally, uh, and pastors a church of about 1,500 in Barrie, Ontario. Very, very um, respected in leadership circles, not only people who are people of faith in the Christian world, but also in the non-Christian world, even in the business world. And he's come out with his book, and I thought it was just amazing, uh, some of the insights that he has. So that's what we're using as our uh, kind of uh, skeleton for all this series that we're doing. Uh, so I would encourage you to go and pick up a copy of it. It's available anywhere. Uh, the name of the book is Didn't See It Coming. And the idea here is that he talks about seven, there's more than seven, I think, but he talks about seven challenges that everyone faces, regardless of what they're doing in life, but nobody really expects them. And we, we eventually see the results of them when there's some kind of major catastrophe that has now come into our life as a result of these challenges. And we started with cynicism, then we talked about compromise. Last week we talked about disconnection, and today we're going to do irrelevance. And you say, wow, these are all negative, like it's so negative, these terms. Uh, and the problem with the church people and the people who are, you know, people of faith, they have a hard time admitting that they struggle with these things. Uh, we have a difficult time saying, good morning, brother so-and-so. Good morning, sister so-and-so. How are you this fine Sunday morning as we worship our Lord together? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. All right? But we don't say, well, I'm very cynical, thank you. Well, I'm struggling with compromise, actually. Well, I'm burnt out. Well, I feel very irrelevant, actually. Uh, well, you know, I've compromised in my life, actually. We don't often talk like that, and we can, we can hide it, and we can conceal what's really going on in our lives, and we're really good at this uh, in church circles, um, and even not in church circles. It's not easy to talk about these things, but they happen to us, and they happen to us often. And usually the train keeps rolling down the track and then, oh, there's a huge problem that happened. And if we play the tape backwards, we can see, oh, you know what? I was cynical for a long time. I lost trust in people and belief and hope. And that led me down a road that I shouldn't have gone on. You know, I compromised my values. I compromised who I wanted to be for something else. And it's led me down a place that I never wanted to go. Um, I, I, have, I have disconnected from those around me. I have used every excuse 
to disconnect from those closest to me. And I'm connected to everyone else via technology or anything, but I'm not connected to those who are closest to me. And today we're going to talk about irrelevance. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone preach a subject about irrelevance. It's a little hard to nail down. Um, how many of you, you like looking at old photo albums? Yourself, your parents, your grandparents, right? So those of you who, let's, you got to go back about a generation or at least 20 years for this little experiment to work. But let's say you're looking at some of those old pictures of maybe, again, yourself, or if those of you who are too young, you might say, well, I can't go back that far, but maybe you can look at your parents or your grandparents. What's the first thing that you usually say to yourself when you look at those old pictures? Just shout it out at me. I'm old. <laughs> What else, though? Just speaking of the practical, say you're looking at a picture from the 1970s, for example. What are you going to probably say to yourself? Nice shirt. Yeah, exactly. So you're going to look and you're going to say, wow, they dressed like that? Their hair was like that? I can't believe my mother looked that way or my father looked that way or my cousin or if you're old enough, I can't believe I dressed like that or I wore my hair like that. So if you go to the next slide, this is a picture of actually my grandfather, all right? And his name, his name was William Rosenblum, very Jewish, right? You can see him with his Jewish uh, we call it a talus over his shoulders. And this is a picture from 1913. How many of you think he's a pretty good-looking guy? Right? So maybe, maybe you know, I got a little bit of that. I don't really think I got much of it, but he's very sharp-looking. But if he were to walk down the street here dressed like that, people would think, I mean, does he have a Tommy gun in his pocket? You know, with the hat, it's kind of 1920s gangster urban feel. It doesn't fit, per se, in this culture, but certainly worked back in 1913. I think that's somewhere in New York State. Um, so he was a wonderful, wonderful man, but lived in a, in a different time in a different culture, in a different era. And this starts to bring the word relevance or irrelevance to a little bit of context. So culture is real. Uh, tell me a little bit about the culture that we live in here in the province of Quebec, which is like a very tense, when you say the word culture in Quebec, tell me what the culture is here. Just shout out some things at me. Do you not watch the news or do you? Culture. Quebec culture. Tell me some things about it. It's French. So the language is very important to the culture, right? So again, if you had a visitor from another world or from Mars or whatever, someplace else and even on this planet, you know, and they were coming here and they wanted to visit Quebec and you were telling them about Quebec culture, what else would you say to them? It's French. Very good. What else? Socialist. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a political statement. Yeah. So we could say, I mean, some may debate that, but... 
that's definitely, there's some kind of, uh, you know, intense politics here, right? And some would say it's a socialist or somewhat socialist culture, and there may be a lot of agreement with that. What else? The food? What about the food? All kinds of different food, yeah. So you can, in Quebec, especially in the big cities, wow, you can, you can go and you can get really good food from different places in the world. And it can be very authentic, even in a socialist <laughs> or maybe a socialist culture. Yeah, a French socialist culture that has a lot of good restaurants. What else? It's multi-ethnic, especially in the big cities. What else would you say? What's that? Secular. Yeah, it's a very secular culture. Um, so the so the government that was elected is is showing that right. So very strong majority, and of course there's this huge debate now about you know the, the this government is saying we don't want any any uh, uh, people in authority who work in the in, for the public so to speak. So judges, police, uh, what is it, teachers, and something else. We don't want them wearing anything of a religious nature secularism there'll be a charter of secularism wow so that's an interesting part of the culture anything else it's what art it's artistic yeah the arts and and the province of quebec is very very prominent especially in the city of montreal yeah it's known as an artistic hub of the world actually anything else you're missing a big one i'm really surprised what's that Education? What about it? It's different from other provinces. CJEP, yeah, that's right. Here we have CJEP. Yeah, that's good. That's cultural. I'm, you're missing one big thing. I'm really surprised. What's that? Neurotic? Erotic, okay. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it, Quebec culture, uh, you know, it, when you say erotic, you mean that there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a huge prevalence of, you know, loose sexuality, immorality. There's, it's very, very acceptable here in the province of Quebec. So it's very, you know, anything kind of goes, it's somewhat like Los Angeles or, you know, a huge, huge city in, in the United States in terms of what's in vogue. As far as, you know, human sexuality, it's very anything goes here. Yeah. Yeah, individualistic meaning. Live and let live. Yeah. Wow, you still want to live here in Quebec? Uh, you're missing one big thing. It, I'll give you a really big hint. R.C. What's that? Video games? That doesn't start with R.C.? R.C. Road construction. <laughs> Even the Facebook people are laughing at that one. Yeah. Road construction. Man, road Armageddon, more like. Good grief. R.C. It's not rechaussee. In the elevator, it's rechaussee. R.C. When you, when you speak of matters of religion and you say R.C. in Quebec, what are you talking about? The Roman Catholic Church. Now, this province has a very unique history with the Roman Catholic Church, doesn't it? I mean, how you go to the city of Montreal, for example, even Brossard, 
you see so many Roman Catholic Church buildings, so many, because the, historically there is an enormous influence of the Roman Catholic Church on everything in Quebec. And historically there is a massive pushback uh, by people against the Roman Catholic Church. So what, what have you done? You've identified a lot of cultural features of the province of Quebec. Good. Now, this is a very highly multicultural church for which I'm extremely thankful. This is not an all-white church or an all-one-ethnicity church. This is an all-dressed pizza. Uh, even in a relatively small church, there's 65 people. There's probably 60-plus 60, 60 people in the room right now, maybe more with the kids. So it's very multicultural. How many of you were not born in this culture? You were born in a different culture, i.e. not Quebec. Put your hand up. Okay, so this is evidence to the fact it's multicultural. So is your culture back home? Because you always say back home is wherever you're born. Is your culture back home the same as Quebec culture? How many of you say yes? Not one. How many of you say no? Yeah, it's completely different. Your culture back home is totally different. And if you were to take someone from Quebec and bring them to your culture back home, you would have to give them an explanation as to how your culture works and what the things are about your culture. So that's when we start thinking about relevance because culture changes. It changes from place to place. And even in one place, culture will change. The culture in Quebec is always changing, and it doesn't ask for our permission to change. It just changes, and we sort of have to look at it and say, okay, what are we going to do with this? all these changes? I mean, we look at culture, we can look at it ab ab even beyond Quebec, and there are changes that, that affect culture that goes beyond local provincial thing. I mean, even in your home, you have a culture. You have a, like a subculture that operates in your house. So culture, though, it's always changing. And it doesn't ask our permission to change. So when we talk about irrelevance, here's the best definition that I could find. And this really, uh, Carrie Newhoff's book is helpful for this. When we lose our ability to meaningfully communicate and have relationships with people who live in our culture. That is really symptomatic of irrelevance. We can't communicate with the people who live in our culture. We have no influence. They're not listening to us. We have no meaningful relationships with people in our culture. And therefore, we are disconnected from it and we're not relevant anymore. There's no, we can't influence it because people aren't even listening to us. And irrelevance, you say, well, I don't really understand how that relates to my life. Let me make it super, super practical for you in two ways, only two, and there are many. Uh, number one, in your immediate family, and for those of you who are people of faith in this room, number two, your Christian witness. So your immediate family. When you say things to yourself like, my spouse doesn't listen to me. I am drifting away from my spouse. We don't communicate. We don't have meaningful communication anymore. I don't understand him. I don't understand her. Um, you don't know their likes, their dislikes, their 
dreams, their passions, the things that frustrate them. You don't know about their hobbies. You don't know. You, you feel like you're just drifting away from that person who's the most significant to you. That could be because you are becoming more and more irrelevant in that person's life. You say, wow, that's really, really harsh. Well, when, you, when you, your kids are growing and you, you find like they're, they're not even listening to me. I don't even know what they do. I don't even know. I don't know who their friends are. I don't know what they watch on television. I don't know what they consume on the, in the media or on the Internet or anything. Like you're drifting away. It's because maybe they're, you're becoming more and more irrelevant. You're losing the ability to communicate with them and to relate to them. And that has to do with a cultural thing. Because even in your house, there is a culture. There is a way that things operate, the way that things run, the way people are. And you start losing what that is, you will become quickly, quickly irrelevant, even in your own family, even in your own household, even with your spouse and with your children. Uh, number two, again, those of you who, you know, you claim to be uh, followers of Jesus, your Christian witness. So back to the province of Quebec, just a statistic, and you will often hear it quoted in this church. Uh, basically, you and me, we are the weirdos in this province. I mean, we're, we're here on a Sunday morning you know, with the declaration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We talk about a personal relationship with Him. Uh, we talk about the Bible and being born again and this sort of thing. We are the odd ball, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, you are an odd ball, because in Quebec, you are. 99% of the people in this province say, I do not relate to anything of what you're talking about. You can go and talk to 100 people over here at the Zistrant. After church, you can go and walk around and, and talk to them about, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus and that being part of a local church. And they will say, that's not me. 99 of them. One of them will say yes. So you want to talk about relevance and irrelevance Wow, we have a whole lot of work to do to reach people who are far from God um, as a church. And it's not just our individual assembly here. It's churches across the whole province. There's only 80,000 people who would profess to be of like faith as you and me in the whole province of 8 million people. It is the statistic that sets us apart in the Western world as far as... Christianity is concerned. We are very, very unique in that area. But my question to you, I think we lost the, the mic. I'm losing it in the, I can't hear it in the speakers. Can you? Can you still hear me? Yeah. yeah? Oh, okay. Maybe it's just me going deaf. I don't know. Um, uh, in your own individual Christian walk, in your own witness, the Bible uses this term. It means you you, you have a story to tell about what Jesus has done in your life. You're a witness. Let me ask you the question, and I, and I ask it to, to people who I meet in all kinds of churches. Uh, we talk about, in this church, we frame it this way. We exist to reach the one who is far from God so that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. Jesus talked about it this way. He said, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you 
until the very end of the age. We call this the Great Commission. So let me ask you the question. In terms of one person, okay, a disciple is a student. A disciple is a learner, a follower. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Obviously, he's not talking to just the, the 11 people who were in the sound of his voice at the time. He's talking to followers of Christ around the world of all times. Go and make disciples of all nations. The question is, have you made one ever? And most Christians would say, I don't know. Maybe. I'm not sure. I invited someone to church, and one time they came, but I don't know where they're at today. Um, the, the phrase, go and make disciples, goes way beyond, well, I invited someone to church. I mean, it's great that you invite someone to church. And here in Quebec, you invite 10 people, nine will say no. One may say yes. You'll invite one person 10 times, they'll say no nine times, but they might say yes the 10th time. And that's really good. That's really good. But making disciples, this is, well, I've made someone into a student, a follower, a learner of Jesus. I had the influence over that person's life, and that person is now following Jesus primarily as a result of my relationship with them, my communication with them. They got exposed to Christ because of me. That's making a disciple. Jesus didn't stop there. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We see this in the New Testament. It's when you dump someone in water and you pick them up. And the idea is they're identifying with Jesus. How many of you have ever baptized anyone? It's not just the clergy who's supposed to baptize people. Jesus said, you go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them. The reason being, you had the influence over their life. You should be baptizing that person. So this is something that, wow, you start thinking about it that way, and you realize, goodness, I'm not sure. And it's hard to answer that question. So what kind of relevance do we have with the culture around us to that end, making disciples? Uh, we're trying to do something in this church and, and we're starting to see some interesting results where when people will really want to grow in their relationship with God, not just, well, you know, I come on Sundays and that's it, but people really want to grow. I mean, there's various ways of doing this. You start getting involved, you start serving, you start doing something. Maybe you're plugging in wires. Uh, maybe you're helping to serve coffee. Maybe you're helping with the kids. Maybe you're running tech. Maybe you're singing and playing an instrument, whatever. Uh, but there's also growth that takes place when you start to learn what it is to follow Christ. When you start to learn how to read your Bible, you start to learn how to pray, you start to learn how to share your faith, you start to learn the meaning of all these things. Um, that's part of growing. And what we're doing now is we're, we have a material that we're, that we're using. It's called the 2-7 series. It's really detailed, really simple, but really detailed, all that basic stuff. And we're pairing people together with mentors in the church. There are a couple of guys who are doing this now. And they can meet with you at your, your own convenience, you know, wherever, however. 
and mentor you and go through this kind of process where you're growing in your understanding of yourself, God, the Bible, all of these things. Uh, if you're interested in that, please come and see me because I've got someone who's waiting to meet you, okay, and who will help you to grow. It takes a long time. It's a period of months and months where you learn and you learn the scripture and you learn, hey, even easy things or what used to be considered easy things. How do I memorize things in the Bible? That's, that's somewhat actually difficult to do, especially in big chunks. How do I, how's that applied to my life? How is that practical for me? All of those things you learn as you're growing and being a disciple. Again, Jesus said, baptize people. Can, can we just start by saying there are people here, even in this assembly? Uh, you need to be baptized in water before you baptize anybody else. <laughs> you, you need to be baptized in water. Um, and so we're setting that up. I just secured the venue yesterday. So November the 10th, we're going to be having a water baptismal evening. It's a Saturday night at 6 o'clock. Uh, it'll be at the only English church in Brossard that actually owns property, okay? Uh, we, there's only two English churches in Brossard that are part of our fellowship, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, and one of them owns property. Uh, we've been there once, and guess what? They have a nice baptismal tank. So I want to baptize any and all who are interested and don't think you can escape so fast because I know who you are and I will hunt you down. You need to be baptized in water. Do you know why? Not because you're perfect, okay? If you are a perfect, Christ, perfect Christian, I do not want to baptize you. Go to a church where there's perfect Christians, okay? Good luck finding one. But if you are an imperfect sinful, struggling Christian, and you struggle to grow, and you, you know you know what you need to do, and you struggle, but you say, listen, I believe, but I've got a faith that's about this big. I'm working it all out, but, but I know, I know that Jesus is real, and I know that I'm trying to follow him. You need to be baptized. It's not because you're perfect. It's because Jesus said so. And because you're being obedient to him, I will baptize children. I will baptize teenagers. I will baptize young adults. I will baptize seniors. I will baptize adults. Whosoever will may come. But you need to be baptized November the 10th in two weeks on Friday night. Not this coming Friday, but the second Friday. I'm going to meet with all the young people. You don't even know this yet. I'm going to send an email out to you and to your parents. I want to meet with the youth on a Friday night. We're going to have pizza, and I'm going, to, I'm going to pummel you all with baptism, okay? And you, you're going to know what it is. You're going to know what it's about. I, again, I can't drag you into it. it. I can't forcefully do that. I'd likely get arrested if I tried to, you know, drag you into the tank and put you underwater. You know, I'd probably get in serious trouble. But I will do anything in my ability to persuade you that you need to be baptized in water. Some of you, you're already looking like this and turning away because you know I know who you are and I will chase you down. That's part of being a disciple. And you, 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 you really grow when you're baptized. Again, it's not for perfect people. It's for people who say, you know what? I've made a decision. The faith, the faith light has come on on my dashboard uh, at some point, you know, like a car and the dashboard lights. Well, the faith light has come on. Well, if the faith light has come on, then you need to be baptized in water. And again, no perfect people allowed. That's the only condition, only imperfect people. 
But how effective is our Christian witness these days? Have you told anybody that you're a Christian? Have you invited anyone to become one? Have you even invited anyone to your church? This is called being a witness. And you, you have a story, a témoignage of who you are, a testimony of who you are, what God has done in your life. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you know everything. But how effective are we in doing this? And that's not only a question of theology. That's a question of culture. And how well can we relate to the culture? If you can't talk to anyone because they don't listen to you, if you can't have meaningful relationships with anyone because you become irrelevant, how effective are you going to be at sharing the gospel? Now, I know what happens with Christians in this endeavor. Christians go, oh, I hear, I hear what you're saying. You want me to compromise my faith in order to share it. So you want me to become like the culture around me in order to share my faith. That's what you want. And, you know, I, I see it's all about compromise, Pastor. And you, this is down a slippery slope. I can see what's happening. No, I'm not talking to you about compromise. Uh, we've already talked about compromise in this series, right? Compromise is when you give up your values, your ethics, your morals. You don't have to compromise one bit to share who you are with other people. Uh, but the question is, are we doing it? So let me, let me, those of you who, you know, you feel like um, you're being poked at here, let me give you some really interesting examples as we start to wind up here in the life of Paul in terms of relevance and biblical information about relevance from the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, uh, this one of two letters um, that made their way into the Bible, and this is, this is the first one. And here's a little passage that relates to our subject today. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave. Slave, don't be bothered by the word. Use the word servant. I've made myself a servant to everyone to win as many as possible. How? To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win the Jews, to those under the law, again, the Jews or a strict Jew, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under any law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, the non-Jewish person, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so that I may win those who don't have the law. To the weak. I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. What's he talking about? He's talking about relevance. So I can dialogue with the Jew. I can dialogue with the non-Jew. I know what they believe. I know their culture. I can become like them in the sense of I can be relevant to those people, and I want to be relevant to them. I want to have a meaningful dialogue and a meaningful communication, a meaningful relationship to them, because that way I win their respect, and that way I could possibly win them over for Christ, and that way I could possibly make disciples of these people. And this is the, the Apostle Paul who's saying this. It can make us very, very uncomfortable. But the Apostle Paul, he didn't compromise. He didn't compromise the things that he believed at all. If you read the New Testament, 
uh, much of which was written by him. He certainly didn't compromise. Uh, some other things that Paul wrote, and this one you're really going to be surprised by. So Galatians chapter 5, again, this is to another church there in the province of Galatia. You don't need to know where that is for, for now. And he writes this famous passage at the end of his little letter there. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We are bound by something in that context. So what's he saying? What's he talking about? Mark my words, and I don't mean to gross you out today, especially the men. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. I declare to every man again who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You say, what are you talking about? What is he talking about today? Okay, so you zap back into his time and his place. You have a group of people who believe the Old Testament and they're Jewish people. And uh, they want to say that these, these people who are starting to follow Christ, um, even if they're non-Jewish people, they need to be circumcised, referring specifically to the men. <laughs> so, so the men basically have to have surgery if they're going to be followers of Jesus. Forget about just by faith. There has to be this rather sensitive operation that must happen to these men in particular if they're going to be considered followers of this Jesus. And Paul, he is opposing this, and he's saying, no way, they do not need this thing. This thing is passe. This thing was for uh, the Jewish people in a certain time, in a certain context, and it, sh it foreshadows something to come for sure. It foreshadows the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, but they do not need this to be a follower of Christ. The men do not need to have surgery, point final. Aren't you glad today that you don't have to have that? I'd like to baptize you in water, okay? But the surgery thing will leave out. And all the men said, yay, right? Uh, otherwise, uh, the whole band would leave the church, right? They're all guys. <laughs> They'd say, bye-bye. This is not the circumcision church, right? So Paul says, you do not need that. You do not, you do not, you do not. And if you read the whole chapter, he has a rather strong graphic criticism for the group of people who say that you do, men. He says, you know what? These people who say that you men need this type of surgery, you know what he says? I don't mean to gross you out. He says, these men, they should go the whole way. You could read that yourself. and you, 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 I think guys understand what I'm saying. So Paul is like violently angry with his pen about this bizarre, wrong idea that the men are required to have surgery. I got you guys thinking over there that the men are required to have surgery to be followers of this Jesus. And yet, if you look at Acts chapter 16, you see that Paul himself performed the procedure on his young protege, Timothy. You say, what? That sounds like a real contradiction. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. Again, these are places you don't need to know much about them for our context today, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Oh, so he had religious on the one side, irreligious on the other side. 
the brothers, the people, the believers there spoke very highly of him. He had a real good reputation. Uh, Paul wanted to take him along on his journey. And so what did he do? He performed the procedure on him. He circumcised him. But there's a reason. Because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. In other words, everybody knows that Timothy, this young Billy Graham, if you will, they know about his mother, but his father's Gentile. He's not Jewish. He's got no religious thing. And so if he's going to be relevant, if Timothy's going to be relevant and be able to win the right to preach the gospel, not only to the non-Jewish people, but to the Jewish people, and word gets out that his father was, you know, a non-Jewish person, that means that he's likely not had the procedure. And so what will that mean? The Jews won't listen to him at all. No respect for him. He's irrelevant to those Jewish people. And so Paul says, Timothy, hold still. It'll only take a minute. Why is he doing that? He's doing that for relevance. He's doing that so Timothy and him are able to communicate the message of Jesus. I made you so uncomfortable with that, didn't I? The message of Jesus and salvation to that people, to that culture, to that time, because he's saying, I will do whatever it takes. To the Jew, I'll become a Jew. To the Gentile, I'll become a Gentile. Whatever it takes, I can do what I need to do in order to be able to be relevant to the culture we see him do it again in Acts chapter 17. The next chapter, he's in a highly non-religious place as far as Judaism is concerned. He's in the Greco-Roman pantheon in Acts chapter 17 and in the city of Athens. And he looks around Acts chapter 17 and he sees that, wow, there's all these statues and all these idols to all these gods of all sorts and shapes and sizes. And the Bible says that he compromised and he bowed down and he worshiped them. No, the Bible says that he was disturbed or vexed in the old language of the King James by what he saw. It bothered him to see all of this Greco-Roman religious pantheon and all these gods and goddesses and all this stuff happening. And he's really, really bothered by it. And so what does he do? Does he stand up on a soapbox and, you know, smash all the idols and say, God's going to get you. God's going to, the fire of heaven's going to come down and destroy you all, you terrible idolaters. Does he do that? No. He looks around and he says, there's a statue there and it says to an unknown God. So he gets an audience with these people and he says to the people, you know, you're such terrible, rotten sinners. The fire of God is going to destroy you all. No. He says, people of Athens, as I look around at your stuff, I see that you're very, very religious people. Wow, what a brilliant statement. You ought to copy that and do the exact same thing. I have done it. It works. So when I'm around non-Christian people, which I try to do as often as I can, oftentimes the non-Christian people that I'm around, they use the name of Jesus more than I do. You ever notice that? <laughs> Jesus this and Jesus that. They say the name of Jesus more than I do, and I'm an ordained minister. 
So when they do that enough around me, I do the exact same thing as Paul. And I say to them, you know something? You are very religious. You say the name of Jesus and you reference things in the Old Testament, like the tabernacle. You know, that's another thing about Quebec culture, right? All the, all the dirty language is about what? Old Testament things, a lot of Old Testament things. I say, you know, you talk about the tabernacle in the, in the Old Testament. You talk about, I mean, uh, you talk about Calvary. Calvary is a swear word in this culture, in French. One time I said that to a guy, I said, you know about Calvary? Do you know what happened on Calvary? He said, Calvary, what? I said, well, you just said it, Calvary. That's where Jesus was executed. Oh, I didn't know that. I said to another lady, I said, you are more religious than I am. You say the name of Jesus 10 times in a half an hour. And she turned to me and she said, I didn't know that. I didn't even realize that. And now she says it a little bit less, uh, but she, she re- she's come to the awareness. And Paul says the same thing. You're very religious. So I look around and see all these objects of worship, but I, told, I saw one, and it said to an unknown God, aha, the God that you don't know, let me tell you about him. And the way that Paul tells the people, unchristian as you can get, un-Jewish as you can get, un-everything, I mean, it's a Greco-Roman belief system. The way he tells them about Jesus indicates clearly that he understands everything about their culture. He understands the prevailing religious views and religious philosophies. He understands all of it. He even quotes from their own pagan poets. He even says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Those are quotes from pagan poets in the first century. Paul knew the culture. He knew how to dialogue with it. He knew how to relate to the people, but he did not compromise what he believed, not one bit. But he knew exactly he could put his finger right on the pulse of the culture because Paul refused to be irrelevant. If he's dealing with the issue of circumcision, he knows how to handle that. If he's in this situation with all these gods and goddesses, he knows how to handle that. Why? He's very, very relevant to what's around him. There's a lady in this church don't know if she's in the room. She is in the room. I won't embarrass her. This lady, she is on WhatsApp. She, she knows the email, and she's electronically, like, plugged in. I mean, her faith is vibrant, relevant. We were having a conversation with her before the service started, and she was talking about her own personal story and how she had to learn to to actually surrender her will to God. Fascinating to listen to her story. Very vibrant faith, very relevant. Understands that, well, if I want to be able to have meaningful dialogue with people, if I want to be able to influence them, if I want to have meaningful relationship with them, hey, I should know a little bit about the culture. But in order to do this, this is the recipe. And we'll finish with these little tips for you. The antidote for irrelevance, you're not going to like. It's a five-letter word. It starts with a C. It'll come on the screen, I hope. The antidote for irrelevance, change. Religious folk don't like to change. Irreligious folk don't like to change. Uh, change is a hard thing. 
I change? Wow, I don't want to change. I like things the way they are. And you know what religious folks say, Christian folk, they say this, God never changes, why should I? Aha, brilliant argument. We can put it on God. It's God's fault. God never changes, so why should I? Can I, can I give you the reason? You're not going to like it. Because God never changes, you need to change. God, one of the characteristics of God, and what we're doing there is we're getting really fancy. We're using theology proper. That's the term we use in, in, in Bible school circles, theology proper, the, the, the theology, the attributes of God. Immutability is one of those attributes. He is immutable. He does not change. His nature doesn't change. I, the Lord, do not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. We say, well, see, God is immutable, and therefore, so, so shall I be. After all, I'm one of his followers. Well, thank God you are not immutable. Thank God you're not going to stay the same as you are. Thank God I'm not going to stay the same that I am. I need to be changing all the time. That's why you're here. God has you in his oven, so to speak, here on planet Earth, and he's cooking you and baking you and stirring you and changing you and molding you and shaping you so that you can be more and more Christ-like in the way that you live and in your character. So you need to be changing all the time because you are not God. If you were God, you wouldn't have to change. But as his follower, you're obliged to change, so we can't blame God. Let me give you three tips to help you to not be irrelevant. Love the mission more than the methods. So some people, again, relating to, relating to sharing their faith, they say, you know, like when I was young, I was given this tract and had these five passages from the book of Romans, and they were all from the King James Version, and I read those five passages, and, and I, I got saved, and I went to church, and, you know, so that's what I need to do to other people. So I need to go find a little tract that has the five passages from the book of Romans written in the King James language. I need to go give it to somebody on the metro, and they're just going to, the same thing's going to happen to them. Okay, you can try that, but the odds are it's not going to work. Do you know why? You're in, the method that you're using is good for 40 years ago. Uh, the mission is great. You, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to expose people to the scripture because that's going to generate faith in them, right? They're going to read something and say, wow, that's in the Bible. That may be interesting. And, you know, faith comes by, by looking at the word and hearing the word we're told. So that's good. You want to expose them to the Bible. But in 17th century English, I remember preaching in a church and on, their, on, on top of their baptismal tank, it said, what doth hinder thee? What doth hinder thee? That's 17th century English. And the challenge there, it's a great challenge, saying, what's stopping you from being baptized? There I go talking about baptism again, right? So I'll look out at all of you and I'll say, what doth hinder thee, right? But you probably say, what's doth mean? What, is it, what does that mean? Like, what kind of English is that? I might well say, well, it's good to challenge you to be baptized, but maybe I need to pick a method that you're going to relate to and be culturally relevant to. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what Paul would do. Paul would say, well, whatever I need to do to try and show you that you need this, I will, even if I have to use this way, this language, 
You don't love the method more than the mission. In 20 years, we're likely not going to be meeting here in this room. We likely aren't going to be streaming it on Facebook Live because maybe in 20 years that method of communication is going to be irrelevant and we'll have to use something else. But you use what you can use so that you can have meaningful dialogue with people and meaningful relationships. Number two, learn the culture. Those of you in your house, in your marriage, with your spouse, with your kids, they're not talking to you. You have nothing in common anymore. You know what you have to do? Change. You have to learn about your partner. You have to learn about your kids. What does my spouse like, dislike? What are their hobbies, their interests, their passions, their dreams, their frustrations? What's their job like? What do they like to do? Well, I don't, I don't want to change for her. I don't want to change for him. Let them learn about me. I don't want to learn about them. <laughs> you try that one and see how far that'll get you. But if you say, well, I want to learn about them, that what you're doing is you're learning about the culture in your own marriage. And that involves what? Change. I want to know what my kids are into. I want to know what they do. I want to know who their friends are. I want to know what they like or dislike. Even if I don't like it or do like it, that's irrelevant, really. I want to learn about them so that I can have meaningful relationship, meaningful communication with them. Otherwise, we're going to drift apart. That involves change. People don't like change. Lastly, build relationships with younger people. I'm so thankful to see a mixed bag of generations here. I see people who, who are seniors. I see people who are very young. That is, I am so thankful for that. You know what the young people need? They need seniors to talk to them, to care for them, to show them that they're interested in them because they go through life with isolation the likes of which we talked a little bit about last week. You know, there are studies that say that university students in particular are so isolated and so alone. They struggle more than ever with things like mental illness. Why? Because they're disconnected, even though they have these phones. Young people need seniors to come into their lives, spend some time with them, learn about them. If you're a senior person and you get into the life of a young person, you start learning about them, you're going to start to learn about their culture, and you're going to be, guess what, relevant, and you will have an influence on their lives, and believe me, they want it, and they need it, just like you need them, they need you, this is the design of the church, but it is very difficult to do because it involves what, say it with me, starts with a C, and I know this is hard to hear. Like, I don't like to change. I've had my hair cut the same way, like, since it started growing. It's the same. I don't, I don't like change either. But if we're going to be able to connect with people, if we're going to have meaningful relationships with people, we have to be relevant. It starts in your home, your Christian witness, and even beyond. Would you stand with me, please? Uh, I've gone on and on and on and pontificated today, so thank you for being patient with me, and I know it's not easy. No, it's not easy to hear some of this. It can be really challenging, so I could, I'd suggest you review uh, some of the passages of Scripture and look into them and say, wow, it's so amazing how even a, a, a person like Paul 
modeled this in his life. Let me pray for you before we finish today. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even the example that you set. Uh, Lord, you came into a broken world as a vulnerable baby, a vulnerable infant in a poor, small town uh, with parents who were immediately on the run. Uh, Lord, uh, appearing to shepherds and common people who were pushed aside by the culture. Uh, Lord, you came into this world in a way that we can relate to you. And so we ask that you would help us. Uh, Lord, I pray for people in homes and marriages today where they, they sense that irrelevance and they're becoming more and more distant from those in their immediate circle of relationships. Lord, I pray for those who would be challenged today uh, about reaching people who don't know you and what they may need to do to change. Uh, but Lord, I pray you would help us and you would enable us by the Spirit of God uh, to be about the business of combating irrelevance, that we truly may make a difference in this world. You've put us here uh, for a reason. It wasn't just to mark time, but Lord, it would be to influence people and show the love of God to people and demonstrate the reality of Jesus uh, to people. Lord, you have a plan and a purpose uh, for each one of us here. So I pray you would reveal that more and more in the days ahead. I pray even, God, for people in the sound of my voice uh, who know that they need to be baptized in water, that simple act of obedience, uh, which could take them uh, further in their, in their relationship with you, in their, in their walk with you. And I pray for them, God. I pray that there would be people who would respond. And we ask, Lord, that you would just, uh, you would go with us, go with the students in their schools, God, in their high schools, in their CJEPs, in their universities, the people in the workforce, uh, God, the people who are retired and have that circle of influence around other people. In the name of Jesus, we pray you would use us, Lord, to truly be your witnesses in this world. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, 